This is Africa Digest. Seventeen hundred hours Central African time. Good evening and welcome to Africa Digest. You're listening to Channel Africa, always giving you news from an African perspective. We are broadcasting to you as always live from our studios in Johannesburg, South Africa, and we're on the frequency seven two six zero kilohertz on the thirty-one meter band to Southern Africa, and online it's www.channelafrica.co.za. So if you think that there's anybody who needs to be listening to this broadcast tonight, be sure to let them know that we are available on www.channelafrica.co.za. My name is Samora Mangesi, driving the show with Onelinsinsi, Wusani Matebula, and Musbudi Makura. Top stories on Africa Digest at this hour. Some DRC opposition MPs call for a dialogue to try and bring back the two leaders who withdrew from the Geneva Agreement. Oxfam International concerned about a worsening humanitarian situation in Libya as rival leaders continue to fight over power. In economics, Kenya's national carrier to launch daily direct flights from Nairobi to Somali capital Mogadishu. And lastly, in sport, the Council for East and Central Africa Football Association confirms the 2018 Senior Challenge Cup will not take place. But anyway, before we get into it, let's find out what is happening in the world of news with Onilinsinski. Thank you, Samara. 25 separatists have been killed in fighting with armed forces in Cameroon. Security officials say they were killed in clashes in Mbat, a village near the town of Ankambe. Those killed are separatists who last year launched an arms campaign for the independence of Cameroon's two Anglophone regions. 80% of Cameroon's population are French speakers, while the rest are English speakers who are concentrated in the country's west, northwest and neighboring southwest regions. Israel's Defense Minister Avigdor Lieberman has announced his resignation and says he is withdrawing his party from government. Lieberman quit in protest over Tuesday's truce agreement over the conflict in Gaza. His decision leaves Benjamin Netanyahu's coalition with a slim one-seat majority in parliament. The BBC's Yolanda Nell reports. At a news conference, Avigdor Lieberman criticized the truce deal, saying it brought short-term quiet at the cost of severe long-term damage to Israel's security. On Tuesday, armed groups in Gaza said they would stick to a ceasefire if Israel respected it too. There was no official comment from the Israeli government or military, but since the statement was made, no missiles have been fired by militants in Gaza and there have been no strikes by Israel in the Strip. Mr. Lieberman said his party would now leave Israel's coalition government. However, an official close to the Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said this needs not immediately trigger a general election. A Zimbabwean opposition lawmaker has reportedly been arrested for calling President Emerson Nangagwa a dog incapable of leading the country. According to NewZimbabwe.com, the MDC National Executive Member Joel Gabuza, who is also Binga South lawmaker, has been charged with undermining the authority of the president. Gabuza allegedly made the remarks during a funeral service in Binga. He criticized the residents of, for voting from Nangagwa and his ZANU-PF party on July 30. Not for the first time, Zimbabwean 
not the first Zimbabwean rather to be charged with insulting the president in recent months. Kabuza was led out on a 200 US dollars bail following a court appearance. South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa has warned the European Union against racism and xenophobia during a speech in Strasbourg, France. This comes amid global concern about the resurgence of the right wing in many European countries. Europe is still dealing with the effect of the massive immigration wave that swept into the continent more than two years ago. Ramaphosa says the EU and the world needs to be vigilant. The specter of the resurgence of racism and xenophobia cloaked in the mantle of nationalism is rising and is causing a great deal of concern in a number of places. Unilateralism is on the rise and threatens in many ways to undermine our collective commitment to democratic values and the respect for human rights. Now, more than ever, we turn to our great leaders for strength and inspiration as we seek to resolve the most pressing challenges of our times. Lastly, the head of the World Food Programme has warned that Yemen is facing what could be the world's worst humanitarian disaster. Yemen has been in the grip of a bloody civil war for three years after Houthi rebels seized much of the country. The Saudi-led coalition has been fighting the rebels since 2015 in support of the internationally recognized government. David Beasley, who is visiting the country, described the situation as desperate, saying up to 14 million people may be on the brink of starvation. We need for this war to end. It is a desperate situation, and there's not going to be enough humanitarian assistance, no matter what, to address all of the problems of a total nation of 29 million people because the economic condition of no jobs, no available cash, limited food, means the rest of the population is now going to be struggling severely. All that compounded together is really a perfect storm for the ultimate worst humanitarian disaster probably in the last hundred years. Channel African News, I am Onilinsinzi. This is Africa Digest. You're currently listening to the first hour of Africa Digest right here on Channel Africa. You know, you absolutely have to love Africans. Um, I think that we have the greatest sense of humor. Now, FYI, here in South Africa at the moment, um, people have been saying that we are uh, orphans because our president is currently in France and our deputy president is in Russia. Uh, And also something very interesting that is happening in South Africa at the moment. We are currently going through a heat wave in Johannesburg, so it is really really hot but speaking of things heating up in the democratic republic of congo some of the opposition mps have called on a dialogue within the opposition to try and bring back the two leaders who withdrew from the geneva agreement now both leaders of the union for democracy and social progress udps uh known as felix chisekedi and the union for the congolese nation unc vital kamere withdrew a few hours after they signed a deal 
that chose Martin Fayulu as the opposition joint candidate for the December presidential election. Jean Nobamweze reports from Kinshasa. The two leaders who decided to withdraw from the Geneva deal that was signed by the seven main leaders of the opposition explained they have done so to respond to their supporters' calls. But most of people, including some members of parliament, are not really convinced by such an explanation as they believe the leader doesn't have to be led by the supporters but he must be the one who leads. And indeed, this is what some MPs from the opposition told the Channel Africa. As they regret the situation, they believe it's putting serious confusion and division within the opposition. While this would be the real time for all opponents to remain united in order to face the outgoing President Joseph Kabila's ruling coalition, well known as the Common Front for Congo, FCC, that's very organized, disciplined and very united behind the joint candidate Emmanuel Ramadan. And according to this opposition MP from the Union of Christian Democrats and Federalists, the Congolese people do not belong to anybody who thinks he can sign today and withdraw his signature any time the way he wants. Honorable Jerome Lusenge Bonane told the Channel Africa the two leaders, meaning Felix Tshisekedi and Vital Kamere, have only 48 hours to try and meet the leaders. They concluded the deal together so that they can find a new agreement and come back to the deal. Honorable Lusenge Bonane, if in 48 hours they sign together another agreement correcting the first one will accept, how come you change today, you change tomorrow? The DRC people do not belong to anybody or any party. If those who withdrew do not come back for a new agreement, I call on DRC people to break away from those who bring division. Division is indeed a situation the Democratic Republic of Congo's opposition is used to, especially when it comes to elections. They always have it difficult to use one voice as everybody wants to become this country's president. This was indeed the case in previous elections. Opponents never succeed to choose and accept a joint candidate, being in both the 2006 and 2011 presidential elections, and this makes it very easy for the ruling coalition to win. Most of candidates for president believe such kinds of deals are always complicated and it's always better for each and everyone to go on a standalone basis. One of them told the Channel Africa he's the one who will do better for people of the Democratic Republic of Congo. Seth Kikuni believes he has all what it needs to improve this country's people's situation as he's a normal citizen and succeeded to brave obstacles. I'm a normal citizen. It's for the first time that a normal citizen is becoming a candidate despite all the obstacles presented by the system. $100,000 are the obstacles. We are used to see politicians who are generally sons of other politicians to take over in this country. And for the first time, a normal citizen, an ordinary citizen, just came in to tell a story and to give hope to the people with a project, a very realistic project capable of taking our country out of the situation is within now. I'm not only telling a story. My life itself is the proof that 
I've done a lot in my private life. I went from zero to what I am today. So I'm not only going to tell a story, I'm going to show them also what I've done so far. 21 candidates have to compete in the December 23rd presidential election and indeed only five weeks remain for the Democratic Republic of Congo's people to go for three polls including the presidential, the national and the provincial parliamentary. Jean-Noël Bamweze for Channel Africa in Kinshasa. A humanitarian aid organization Oxfam International says it is concerned about the worsening humanitarian situation in Libya as rival leaders continue to fight over power. Now the comments come after Libya's two main rival leaders, uh, Fayez al-Siraj, uh, whose internationally recognized government is based in the western Libya, and Khalifa Haftar, who rules most of the east, met for the first time in more than five months in Italy. This was in order to try and reconcile ahead of the election, and Libya has remained dogged by turmoil since 2011, when a bloody NATO-backed uprising led uh, to the ousting and death of long-serving leader Muammar Gaddafi after more than four decades in power. And the elections, which were set for December, have been postponed due to a spike in violence. Oxfam's Paolo Pezzati says the organization is not happy with the outcome of the Italy conference. Firstly, I may say that any action by the Italian government and the community to work towards the stabilization of Libya is welcome. But we also may say that we are not sure that has been a success this meeting, this conference. And um, for example, they didn't release a final statement. And uh, so uh, we are thinking that maybe there is not a deeper uh, agreement how to proceed. Anyway, Mr. Salome said that a little step forward had made. So we believe in what he said. For our point of view, so is under a human right lens, we are not so happy. We are not so happy because... Uh, the human rights dossier and the situation for migrants and also uh, for um, Libyan people is not clear and was not talked about. So are you saying that not much has been achieved by uh, this reconciliation conference? But our idea is that um, there is a little step to... In the final um, declaration, Mr. Salome said that all the parts are convened to um, attend at a future national assembly uh, that would prepare all the parts to the election. But we think that this agreement is uh, fragile. Uh, is still fragile. We need to work to verify if uh, next year, early next year, all the parties still agree and they have the willingness to proceed to having peacefully election. Mr. Pizzati, Italy has been uh, eager to play a high-profile role in Libyan diplomacy, competing with uh, France, uh, which hosted a conference in May this year. Is uh, the role that is played by international leaders, such as uh, French leader Emmanuel Macron, as well as uh, the Italian Prime Minister, has uh, this role been 
been effective enough in getting the country towards an election, do you think? But I think that in now we need a common position. Now it's time that the international community, and in this case particularly Italy, France, and all the European countries will have only one position. So we hope that now things won't change. Because now it seems, they said it, that maybe there is a hope. So all the parts, all the Libyan parties, uh, actors said, okay, we agree in this roadmap. So this is the moment now to play from the, the same side, no? And uh, we can only now wait, because we are in uh, November. Uh, we, as Oxfam Italy, we agreed that now there uh, weren't the condition now inside the country to have a free and regular election. So we agree uh, with um, the position of the UN Special Envoy. But now we need a common position. So to, uh, that every country, European country, be in the same side, bringing Libyan community to have a free uh, election uh, at least this spring. Did you get a chance maybe to talk to one of the leaders in attendance at the reconciliation conference? No, we hadn't this opportunity. Uh, we asked as a um, civil society to be involved in the conference, uh, maybe with sa- some uh, side event but wasn't possible so uh, we asked to our ministry foreign affairs ministry and uh, his deputy to consider the possibility to involve us in at the next uh, occasion so as um, a really important part of the whole framework that civil society could talk with leaders could talk with the Libyan civil society Now was Paolo Pizzati, Oxfam Italy Policy Advisor for Humanitarian Emergencies on the line from the capital, Rome, talking to Kumbero Munzelele. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Culture and Joy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka. In Yawundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel African in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa. As the world's biggest HIV and TB financier, the Global Fund to Fight 
AIDS, tuberculosis and malaria meet in Geneva. Doctors Without Borders is calling for the organization to address urgent changes for countries transitioning away from donor support. MSF, otherwise known as Doctors Without Borders, says these changes are vital to decrease the risk of critical drug stockouts and quality issues. Now to speak to us further on some of the changes that MSF are calling for, we are now joined on the line by Shannon Lynch, the HIV and TB policy advisor for MSF's uh, access campaign. Thank you very much for joining us, Shannon. Thank you for having me. It's it's uh, Sh- Sharonan. Is it's it Sharonan? Yes. Sharonan. Yes. Okay. Thank you very much. Uh, so MSF says that transitioning countries are faced with dangerous treatment, interruptions, and other issues. Can you elaborate on this for us, please? Yes. So this is a situation that countries are facing whether or not they are co whether or not they are transitioning from global fund support because even those countries that remain eligible for global fund support because of income level and because of the level of HIV and TB and malaria burden it is a problem because for the last 16 years the global fund has had great success in using the large volumes it represents in terms of procuring drugs and diagnostics, in terms of getting the the lowest price possible through negotiation with companies, Mm -hmm. through generic competition, through multiple suppliers, and also using a high standard of quality that those drugs and diagnostics that are assured by WHO. So then, essentially, some countries find themselves flipping the switch overnight. And again, the countries that are both eligible for global fund funding and those that are, are transitioning away go switch shifting to national procurement. Now, national procurement system, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. And of course, the global fund and others would like to see more countries mm. invest mm. in fighting the national HIV and TB and malaria responses. The risk, though, is in switching literally overnight you have some countries paying exorbitant prices for mm. drugs and diagnostics because they are negotiating bilaterally with companies so that's going back to 1999 to 2000 to 2001 when there are exorbitant prices secondly many countries do not have the same quality standard and the rigorous quality assurance that WHO does. So it's just a matter of can we please have a point of reflection here before we all jump with our eyes wide shut over a cliff in terms of the drastic changes and the fallout in terms of price and in terms of quality. And then you mentioned the stockouts, and we have drawn attention to that in terms of what the Global Drug Facility, which has helped countries procure through pooled procurement, where Again, much like the Global Fund, they are able to work with multiple suppliers, negotiate prices, and get quality-assured drugs into mm. countries, and doctors and nurses get those drugs into bodies for people who, who need them. Of course. So what the Global Drug Facility has documented is over the last 18 months, there have been, and this is linked to the Global Fund co-financing and transition policies, 15 countries that have experienced stockouts of TB drugs and a number of countries that have procured drugs of unknown quality and a number of countries, 21 countries, that have purchased drugs and tests at prices that far exceed the lowest global price that they should be paying. So 
And this is documentation in terms of what is literally, again, happening overnight. So all we're asking for, which is relatively simple, is mm. you know, a point of reflection for the Global Fund to make sure that they look before they leap in terms of negotiating with countries to shift to national financing of drugs so that we don't lose prices, so that we don't lose quality, and we don't lose a steady supply of drugs. Now, I just want to point out that when drugs are procured from the global drug facility mm -hmm. or the global fund, yes. one of the great benefits, in addition to the lower prices, in addition to the quality standard, is the fact that most countries provide a waiver if there is no registration. Okay. The problem is, is that we rely upon the benevolence of drug companies and of diagnostic companies to register their products country by country. So when we switch to national procurement, so many of the stockouts that we're seeing is because of the fact that the drugs and the diagnostics are not registered. Mm. So here again, this is something that should have been anticipated, and it, the risk of the stockouts should have been mitigated. And so if we can just look at the, what has already happened over the past 18 months, what the Global Drug Facility has reported on, then that certainly is both a cause for alarm and a cause for getting affected governments in the room, mm -hmm. donors in the room, and the Global Fund in a room to figure out how do we mitigate future risks so that the treatment for HIV and affordable treatment for TB with quality drugs is not further jeopardized. Sharon, let's speak about the changes to the funding model of the Global Fund. Why is that happening? Right. It's happening because of underfunding by the Global Fund. Okay. You know, so here's the thing, is that the Global Fund works on their eligibility criteria based on only two indicators. One mm -hmm. is the income classification. Okay. And many countries have jumped up, which is great news, right? But mm, in terms of we know that if a country jumps up, let's say, in their income classification according to the World Bank definitions, it yes. doesn't mean that sick people benefit overnight. So it's, the matter is, is like, well, shouldn't there be a grace period for crying out loud in terms mm. of going from an income classification that essentially bumps you out of being eligible for global fund funding, which is one of the best impetus that we have in terms of incentivizing governments to do the right thing, and in some cases that means improving treatment protocols for HIV and TB and malaria, mm. as well as the diagnostics that they use. So the second indication that they use is disease burden, but that is the number of people with HIV and TB and malaria today. They don't look at the growth of epidemics. So even in some countries where we see HIV cases going up because mm -hmm. of today's, so they don't look at the epidemiological trends. They're only looking at a static picture of the number of people affected today. Mm. So it, it's frankly a bit myopic. And uh, the obvious you know, factor here, when you're fighting infectious disease, is the pace of your response. And because of the underfunding of the Global Fund, they have had to cleave off countries from support and push for more national co-financing, mm. which, again, there is nothing wrong with national co-financing, but when it comes to some of the sensitive dynamics in terms of the prices and the quality of drugs and the supply of drugs and diagnostics, then it certainly begs for a moment of reflection. Mm. And uh, which countries would you say you're finding are, you know, at the higher side of the risk in terms of, uh, you know, the dangerous treatment interruptions, et cetera, that we spoke about earlier on? 
So the Global Drug Facility, they've been documenting over the last 18 months the, mm. the problems with TB drug stockouts. What MSF has witnessed, even in the past seven months, is a number of countries that have had drug stockouts, both of ARVs and of TB drugs, and also higher prices. So I will give you an example. Yep. Um, I could actually give you a couple of examples if you like. That would be great. Yeah. So, one, in India, there was a stock out of pediatric ARVs mm. because the government did what they, they are supposed to do. They issued a national tender. A national company responded. Okay. They provided the lowest price. They won the bid. But the company had never produced pediatric ARVs before. They oh. weren't WHO pre-qualified. They couldn't meet demand. And there you go, a stock out. Secondly, in Armenia, there was a stock out of first-line TB drugs. And the reason why is because, again, government did what it was supposed to do. It issued mm -hmm. a national tender, yep. but none of the TB drugs were registered in the country. So there was a stock out. MSF had to fill the gap. Mm. We see examples where countries go from paying $10 for an essential TB test, which is called the Gene Expert MTB RIF test, okay. that is essential for diagnosing TB. It's one of the best tests that we have. Mm. It's $10 a cartridge, and yet we see some countries paying up to $100 wow. a cartridge. So we're at a moment when we've got the best ARV regimen that we've ever had, mm. and also at the most affordable prices. But only some countries will be able to receive those prices in the future. Because if we have to go back to negotiating country by country, company by company, drug by drug, then we are willfully throwing away the lessons of the last 16 years of the Global Fund and the last 18 years of scale-up of ARVs in the public sector. China. Considering the, the success to date, it's worth a point of reflection. Mm. Yes. Thank you so much for joining us on the line and letting us know what is happening uh, with the Global Fund to fight AIDS, tuberculosis and malaria. And hopefully they are going to be uh, considering the points that MSF is uh, wanting them to, you know, to, to speak about uh, in their, uh, uh, in the next couple, in the next, uh, this, this. Two days. Yes. Thank you very much for joining us. That was Sharon Ann Lynch, the HIV and TB policy advisor for MSF's Access Campaign. But the time now is 17.30 Central African time. It's time for us to find out uh, just a quick update on what's happening with the news from Ole Lensinti. Twenty-five separatists have been killed in fighting with armed forces in Cameroon. The Executive Council of the African Union on its two-day meeting at the African Union headquarters in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. And Malawi has dropped to position 19 for 54 African states in governance over the past decade. Channel Africa News, I am Onelen Zinzi. This is Africa Digest.
The Executive Council of the African Union has begun its two-day meeting at the African Union headquarters in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. The foreign affairs ministers meet to discuss the agenda for the heads of states when they meet for the extraordinary summit at the same venue on the 17th and 18th of this month. Koleta Wanjohi filed this report. The African Foreign Affairs Ministers meeting here at the African Union headquarters in Ethiopia will be looking at what the heads of state should discuss when they come for their summit on the 17th and 18th of this month. The main agenda will be how to reform the African Union Commission and the African Union itself, as well as ensure more financial self-dependence in the continent. The Foreign Affairs Minister for Rwanda, Richard Sezibera, explains further. Strong accountability and performance systems are essential. Proposals for performance-based measures will have to be strengthened for the senior leadership and institutionalized across the entire organization with adequate measures in place to address non-delivery. The reforms of the African Union Commission and the African Union are championed by President of Rwanda, Paul Kagame, who is also the chairperson of the African Union. The reforms include, among other things, re-strategizing the operation of the African Union from the number of summits in a year to revising the functions of different arms of the African Union Commission, some of which are accused of duplication. The chairperson of the African Union Commission, Mohamed Musafaki, explains further the importance of the reforms. The ongoing institutional reform is undoubtedly one of the most ambitious initiatives for change ever undertaken by our Union. It uh, touches upon all the aspects of its functioning and concerns all its organs. Other attempts were made in the past, and we have to recognize that they were not at the level of expectations and did not live up to expectations, leaving a bitter taste of unfinished business. It is therefore significant that our heads of state and government decided in January 2017 in Addis Ababa to be directly involved in the process. Among the AU's 55 member states, there are major differences of opinion about the form and substance of the reforms. Some countries simply don't want a strong African Union Commission in Addis Ababa that can dictate to sovereign states. Others agree that the AU needs a major overhaul, but that consultation is important and the top-down approach is not the way to go. The chairperson of the African Union Commission, Mohamed Musafaki, explains. The PRC has considered in depth several issues. It applies to the reform of the Commission with particular focus on the rationalization of the structure of its leadership and the portfolios, the method of selecting its members and the elements that are needed for accountability both within the Commission as well as to the member states. It obviously behoves you to decide on the action to be taken and the suggested uh, option. But whatever formula is chosen, it is imperative to preserve uh, the fundamental principles that have underpinned the composition of our commission since its inception. When the heads of state meet on the 17th and 18th of this month, they will then decide what kind of reforms should be implemented and how soon. Koletan Johi for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. 17.34 right now. And the European Union Observer Mission overseeing Madagascar's elections said on Monday this week that ex-president Andriy Rajolina had bribed two local officials with a total of 5,000 US dollars. Now, Rajolina had uh, rejected these allegations contained in a report which outlined 
that the Observer mission had noted candidates committed breaches ahead of November 7th poll. Uh, according to preliminary results, uh, Rajulina was leading the election race ahead of rival Mark Ravalomanana, uh, also a former president. Now, to give us a perspective of the situation while we await the results, uh, the final results, that is, Channel Africa spoke to Professor Dirk Kotsa, a professor in political sciences at the University of South Africa, UNISA, Liesl Lowe uh, Vaudrin, a senior research consultant at the Institute for Security Studies, and Frank Lecaire, researcher at the Africa Institute of South Africa's unit of the Human Sciences Research Council. The elections remain important. We cannot wish them away for any reason. Um, and therefore, I think the decision about who's the next president of Madagascar is going to be important, not only in terms of the economic development, but very much about the political stability also and the direction that the country is going to take for the next five years. Because as you said in your introduction, it is one of the poorest countries um, in Africa and actually in the world. They very much depend on, on, the, on, on external support. Um, but at the same time, they've become in a very much sort of caught into the domain of many other international powers. For example, obviously France in the first instance, and France maintains a very strong presence in uh, Madagascar. They have even milit- uh, French troops in, in Madagascar all the time still. But then the other country that can exceptionally prominent in Madagascar, especially during the crisis period after 2009, is China. Um, they are involved in the export of wood, of, of oil, uh, sand oil in Madagascar, and all sorts of other things. So these have all very important impact on it, and the, the person who will be elected uh, as president will determine to what extent, in which direction this is going. This was, for example, one of the explanations that uh, President Ravlamanana gave to me why he was expelled as, as president is because he opened up the economy too mm-hmm. much and wanted to move away from this French dominance that existed there. Um, so from if we look at all these different considerations, it, it remains important uh, who is going to be elected there. Well, let me bring it to you, Liesl, there from Addis Ababa. What are your thoughts? What is actually pinned on these particular elections? Yes, hi, uh, good morning. I, I, I agree with the professor. These are very important, even though we are seeing the same characters, the same elite leaders again participating uh, in this poll. Uh, your original question uh, at the start of the program about, you know, is this a good thing that we have three former presidents? I think if you look at the massive gap in the results between, on the one side, Rajulina Ravalamanana and then Rajao Nariman Pian and his results that are just bordering 80% and the others are, are now, I think, 36, 39%. 39 and a half for Rajolina. It shows that um, there is this, this uh, huge gap between the former presidents who are still very powerful and who also have a lot of money. I mean, that, that has been one of the themes of this campaign is, uh, you know, the helicopters, how much money has been spent on campaigns, even allegations of bribery, as you said. Um, so having former presidents running um, just also skews the playing field because they seem, in this case, in Madagascar, certainly to have a lot more means to campaign than everybody else, including the incumbent who, as you know, had to step down in, in September.
Well, let me move on to you, Frank. There is this contestation between these uh, two that we are outlining right now, Mark Ravalomanana and Andre Rajolina. What are your thoughts between that battle? Yeah, the, the battle is a continuation, uh, Benjamin. The prof has given a, a very good perspective around this contestation. But I think at some point, Rajolina uh, was seen as a continuation of the battle Didier Atiraka had with Magravalo uh, Manana. Uh, you remember his TV station was closed down in 2009 after he had given uh, former President Ratsiraka uh, that opportunity to, to, to speak on, on his show and he was very critical of the government, government administration of uh, Magravalo Manana and just close down. So it's, it's a multiplicity of issues here. Hence the issues of reconciliation now, uh, the, the, the Council for Malagasy Reconciliation is trying uh, uh, its best to look into all of these issues in order to see to it that it paves the country into a, a path of stability and peace. So over and above, Prof has covered uh, almost every issue that I would want to raise, except to say just the battles between Ravalo Manana and, and, and Rajolina are all battles. Uh, they are continuing in, in, in the part of Rajolina is a battle supported by the, uh, the former president who was very bitter to be removed by Mark Ravalo Manana. Remember, in 2002 elections, they, had, they were supposed to go for reasons, and Mark Ravalo Manana declared himself the president. And Ratiraka was not happy with that. So that uh, feud continued, and I think there's that semblance of its existence even to this day. And that was Frank Lekaba, a researcher at the Africa Institute of South Africa's unit of the Human Sciences Research Council. You also heard from Professor Dirk Kotza, a professor in political sciences at the University of South Africa, otherwise known as UNISA, and Liesel Lowe-Vaudren, uh, the senior research consultant at the Institute for Security Studies. And they were speaking to Benjamin Mushatama. Now, hundreds of film, television, digital and video gaming content producers from all over Africa have converged in Johannesburg, South Africa for the continent's largest market and co-production forum known as Discop Johannesburg. Now, the event seeks to help entertainment content producers, sellers and buyers connect, build relationships, pitch projects and make deals in Africa and the Middle East. Two of the world's fastest growing marketplaces. Uh, now, it also provides a rare opportunity to speak directly to some of the most powerful and influential executives that act as international gatekeepers and trend leaders with regards to African produced television, film, and digital content. Now, more from Discop CEO Patrick Zukowicki. Marketivo is a digital ecosystem, and we use audio, creative writing, photography and um, video to really give a push or drive a conversation towards gender equality and to uh, raise a feminist consciousness on the continent. So what we've done is a team of 13 uh, women um, led by, we have um, two older women also who've been in the space and been working around gender equality and feminism for around 20 years leading us. Um, But what we're trying to do is become a new voice for the women's liberation um, movement in South Africa. So what sort of content will be uploaded on this platform? 
Well, our topics, we have five categories in which our topics will concentrate on news and current affairs, but all of from a, a feminist lens, we have a 360 view on the woman's body, including mental health, because we believe that it's a topical conversation, and especially because we think that this is a home for activists with like their mental health or create a space in which they can offload, uh, because some of the work can be lonely and very, very um, challenging to women. We also have... Um, arts and culture. So we are young, we do want to discuss these hard issues, but we also want it to be a fun space for women. But So everything that we do is through a feminist lens, and um, we also have a space for men where we're going to be speaking to men about uh, the issues that we face as young women and how to drive a conversation on how to effectively uh, heal as a nation and how do we involve them in our fight against gender-based violence. Now, South Africa is one of the highest rates of domestic abuse in the world. Why was it so important to create a platform like this? How will it you know, deter people from actually committing such abuses in your view? I think uh, our main aim is that we're not saying that we have the solutions, but we are committed to making sure that this conversation um, is taken seriously by um, international and national bodies who are responsible for creating an environment in which women can be successful and free. So, yes, we do understand, and I think the statistics is what pushed us to creating such a platform. So uh, what we intend to do is become the media where the media is silent and also hold governments accountable for them not creating enough policies and implementing them in such a way that um, violence against women is reduced. So how then does one get to participate in this platform? Is there like a website? What social media handles can one use to be involved? So uh, the best place to get us is on our website. It's www.notyetuhuru.com. But we have, we are very, very active on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And our handle is SA. And we'd encourage people just to engage in the conversation because we want to make it a national conversation and build a feminist consciousness. And what we're saying also is uh, leading up to the elections, we want the government to tell us why uh, women should trust them with their votes because there's a lot of the state of the country is unsafe for women at the present moment and uh, women want to want uh, a government that's going to put their issues on the forefront so um, one of um, the things uh, that we are driving with Nadia Huru is saying that in the 2019 elections we're going to vote for a feminist government and we're voting for a party that's going to be able to de- deliver on based on those demands. And that was uh, Discom CEO Patrick Zuchoki um, on the line talking to Sukona Miso. But anyway, the time is now 17.16 Central African time. It's time for Wisani Matebula to let us know what is happening with our money.
Good evening. Uh, thanks, uh, Samora. Shares in South Africa's MTN Group gave up early gains, uh, triggered by a media report that Nigerian authorities could reduce the 10 billion US dollar sum they are demanding from the telecoms company in a dispute. Nigerian newspaper Vanguard, without naming its sources, says government is working through the uh, with the central bank and may have concluded arrangements to cut the fine. MTN declined to comment on the report. Meanwhile, Nigeria Central Bank says it's unaware of any deal between it and MTN. And shares in Nigeria's Diamond Bank fell to an 18-month low on Wednesday, dropping for a third straight day after the mid-tier lender denied media speculation that it was in talks to be bought by rival Access Bank. The shares fell to 11 last seen in May 2017, down 9.5% after dropping to more than a year low in the previous session. Diamond has been managing its capital since 2016 to ensure it stays within the minimum regulatory ratio. The bank says no investor had come forward to inject cash into the company and its board was reviewing all options after four of its creditors and directors resigned last month. Members of the British cabinet will decide whether to back a draft agreement with uh, the European Union on terms of the country's exit from the bloc. Prime Minister Theresa May faces fierce opposition from hardline Brexit supporters in a party. Ambassadors from the 27 other EU states will also meet to discuss the draft. The BBC's Philippa Thomas reports on the details. The basic outline would take the UK out of the European Union, technically delivering on the Brexit vote of two years ago, whilst keeping the UK, and particularly Northern Ireland, inside a customs union. In Northern Ireland itself, there'd be a stronger alignment with EU trade laws. So it's a compromise. And the question for Cabinet members is, is this the best that we can get? Kenya's national carrier Kenyan Airways is set to launch daily direct flights from Nairobi to the Somali capital Mogadishu on Thursday. KQ, as the airline is known, says the move follows increased demand on the route as it stretches its wings in a move expected to boost trade with the Horn of Africa nation. Sarakimani reports. The daily non-stop flight will leave Nairobi just before 8 in the morning to arrive in Mogadishu just before 10 a.m. It will be back in the Kenyan capital before 1 p.m. KQ's direct flights to Somalia will help Kenya narrow its widening trade deficit with the Horn of African nation, which currently stands at $974 million. Exports to Somalia increased by 33% in the first half of the year, making it the third largest destination for Kenya's merchandise in Africa. The announcement comes less than a week after Africa's largest carrier, Ethiopian Airways, launched its inaugural flight to the Somali capital after a 40-year absence. Sarah Kimani, SBC News. Former South African Public Enterprises Minister Barbara Hogan has told the Commission of Inquiry into State Capture that she first learned that South African Airways uh, will be cancelling its uh, Johannesburg to Mumbai route while on a trip to India in June 2010. At a time when she was minister. She says she immediately contacted the then SAA chairperson Cheryl Carolas to verify the rumours. Hogan gave evidence at the commission in Johannesburg. Ms. Carolla sent me another text message dated the 30th of August from uh, the chair of SAA. 
Hi B, for your information, South African Airways is at Scopa tomorrow. Also note that the CEO chairman from Jet Airways India will be in South Africa for the India-South Africa meeting. He is lobbying hard for SAA to end its Mumbai flight. We reject this. Please let me know if he's trying to meet with you so we can brief. Financial indicators, the dollar trading at 10.54, Botswana Pule, 11.88, Zambian Kwacha, also 8.77 pence, pence to the British pound and 88 cents against the euro. Commodities, gold, 1,000, dollars platinum, $836 per fine ounce, Brent crude oil at uh, $65.65 per barrel. And that's how it's looking. Now it's time for your sport with Musbudi Makura. Good evening, sports fans, and starting off with football news, the Council of East and Central Africa Football Associations, that is SACAFA, has confirmed that the 2018 Senior Challenge Cup will not, um, that was scheduled rather to start later this month, will not take place. Now, SACAFA struggled to find a new host after Kenya pulled out of staging the event back in August due to financial reasons. Nicholas Musonye, the Secretary General of SACAFA, indicated that they tried to get alternatives, but the timing was also impossible because the CAF Champions League as well as the CAF Confederations Cup matches will start in November right through to December for the preliminary rounds. Meanwhile, the Confederation of African Football, that is CAF, has named Gambia's Bakari Papa Gassama as the centre referee for the 2019 Africa Cup of Nations qualifier between Bafana Bafana of South Africa as well as the Super Eagles of Nigeria. The game is one of the biggest matches to be played in the round five of the 2019 AFCON qualifiers across Africa and CAF has decided to look into the direction of the biggest referee on the continent to take charge of that match. South Africa's national under-17 women's football team played out to a goalless draw against Mexico in the under-17 World Cup Group B opening match at the Estadio Domingo in Uruguay on Tuesday night. Bantuana were forced to defend deep most of the first half as they struggled to contain the onslaught of the South Americans. After surviving some intense pressure and shaking off some early nerves, the South Africans came out of their shell in the second half and showed that they are meant to be at the tournament. Coach Simpiwe Lulu sums up her team's performance. Game. 
Well, in the, in the other Group B match, Japan and Brazil also played out to a goalless draw, which leaves all the teams with a point each going into the second round of matches starting on Friday. On to cricket news, Proteus Sima Delstein has been released from the squad and will return to South Africa from Australia, meaning he will not feature in Saturday's once-off T20 international on the Gold Coast. Stain is returning to take part in the Mzanzi Super League and play, will play for the Cape Town Blitz. The Blitz take on the Tswana Spartans in their first match of the tournament on Friday, but Stain will not be available for that match. He is likely, however, to feature in Sunday's clash against the Durban Heat at King's Mead Stadium. And finally, Uganda's Men, um, Uganda's national senior netball team has commenced preparations ahead of its appearance in an invitational tournament. Um, Fifteen players turned up for a training camp at the MTN Arena in Kampala this week. Uganda will play three games in the tournament that gets underway on the 26th of November at the venue for the 2019 Netball World Cup in Liverpool, England. Sam Poza reports from Kampala. The forthcoming international invitational tournament will give the Shikrains a golden opportunity to test the 2019 Netball World Cup courts while facing formidable position. Uganda is pulled in Group D of the 2019 Netball World Cup alongside England, Scotland and Samoa. They will face England and Scotland in a dress rehearsal set to play out from November 26th to December 2nd. I'll leave you there for now. I'm back with more sports news just before 8 p.m. Central African time. This is Africa Digest. That is how we wrap up Africa Digest today. From myself, Samora Magesi, producer Leonda Maome, and technical producer Sfiso Mashiko, as well as the rest of the Africa Digest team, thank you very much for listening. If you have any comments with regards to the show, you can send us an email to info at channelafrica.co.za or you can WhatsApp us to 763003327. And if you're outside of the South African borders, be sure to use that international dialing code, which is plus two seven. You can also tweet us at channelafrica1. Taking us to the top of the hour is Kue. Bye, Ndando.